You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. May the earth acid cleanse us as we talk about Welcome to Sky Valley, also known as Sky Valley and Caius, the third studio album by Caius. It was released on June 28, 1994 through Electra and Chameleon Records. It was produced by Chris Goss and the band. This is the first Caius album to feature bassist Scott Reeder and the last to include founding member Brant Bjork. Once he returned from the belly of the beast, well, he's never been quite the same. Welcome back to the show, Tim Fernandez. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing well. How are you? I also am doing well. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's it. Show is over. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm doing well. And uh, I'm really excited because this is one of those, when I first made my list of albums to do, this is one that I was hoping you would choose at some point, because I know this is one of those albums we kind of bonded over. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. I'm, I'm glad you offered it up. Yeah, a few people had talked about it, and then I talked them out of it, hoping that it was going to be <laughs> something that would catch your uh, catch your eye. Because somebody else wanted to do it, but it was one of those he knew it more by reputation, and he wanted to listen to it that way. And then I thought, no, no, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that when I have when I have Tim on the line to do this one. And this is one that we both love. So the so, show's so, resident stoner rock expert, apparently. Exactly, you got to have one. Yeah, you got to have yep. one on speed dial. You know, that's so right. it's uh, yep. that's why I keep you around. Uh, so, how did this album enter your life, Tim? So I became aware of Caius the same way I found most bands, which was a single on Headbangers Ball. I remember seeing the video for Green Machine off the Blues for the from the Red Sun album, and that's how they came on my radar. I bought that album, loved it. By the time Sky Valley came out, I was once again working in a record store and received it that day and didn't know it was coming and was pleasantly surprised and brought it home that day. And this turned out to be one of my favorite albums of all time. This is the first album that I heard by Caius. This one came in. And so I think we have, I think it was like the same thing with Monster Magnet. You were working at the record store. I was working at college radio. When this one came out, this came on my desk. This came through my desk because this came out in this, obviously the summer before my final year of college. And at that point, mm. I was the metal director and I was the station manager, or I was going to be the station manager that following year. And so I was home for the summer in Daytona and I had gone to Tampa to go to a show. And there was a couple of times I would go out there just to basically check the radio station's mail <laughs> so <laughs> I could take uh, take care of uh, you know these loads of CDs that we still got throughout the summer. Obviously, it wasn't quite the same as it would be during the semester. And this is one that I got. And I don't remember exactly if it was just one of those, this looks interesting, I'll play it, or if one of the people who were, because I used to call into CMJ and have to report my playlists and this kind of thing. <clears throat> and so I don't know if one of those people who were servicing the record really bugged me about listening to it or if I just threw it on, but it was instant. This is just one of those, you know, that whole, when the needle hits the record, even though I listened to it on CD, it was like instant. I love this <laughs> and yeah. just, just right away. And I was, a, I was a huge evangelist for this record, mm -hmm. I would, uh, you know? So I remember playing this for Mark uh, when, when I got back right. to, uh, got back to Daytona. I remember talking the, uh, the regular music director, cause we obviously was a college radio station. So it was mainly alternative. And, and I got him to include one of the songs on regular rotation and not just the metal rotation. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, anybody who asked, this is what I was listening to. So I really just right. dug this record right from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Uh, you saying that you were the metal director at the station makes me realize that, you know, this was kind of on the cusp or, or kind of the first introduction of what metal would become at this point in time. 
metal was kind of starting thanks to the black album or as a result of the black album probably metal is starting to transition at this point in time and i think this is kind of what it becomes at least to survive for a few more years and i I still feel like this was a little bit of i think because this really helped cement that idea of stoner rock along with monster magnet fu manchu a few others they were never commercially successful and then obviously no. the guitar player went on to become very commercially successful, which we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I feel like the reason why, why I like this so much is because a lot of what was coming out as metal at this point is when I started realizing metal wasn't being made for me. It took me about another year to really fully articulate that. But at this point, the first corn record was either out or getting ready to come out. Mm. And yeah, I not remember- for me either. And I, I liked that first corn record fine. You know, I didn't think oh, it was really? great. I didn't think it was the greatest thing ever, but I enjoyed it. I didn't think that was going to be what we were lis- going to be listening to on rock radio for the next half a decade. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were really pushing that record. And, uh, you know, I did a phone interview with the singer and they played a place that's probably the size of my apartment and they were the middle band and a three band bill, you know, so they opened wow. up for Orange Nine Millimeter. And so I could see just, you know, and this, but this was before, let's say Limp Biscuit and a lot of the other things. So it wasn't really until probably about what, 97 or so Mm. that I think it really made that turn. So at the time I was listening to this a lot and I was listening to that first Marilyn Manson record a lot. So these are kind of the two that I went back and forth. What I liked about Manson was that it felt like a return to rock stars, but this one, was just like, this felt very different to me than any other metal that I was listening to at the time. Yeah, for sure. So let's uh, go ahead and jump into the track by track analysis. And I'm going to say this right up front that on my CD, and I think on most CDs, this was actually done in suites. There are three suites on this, uh, the first two containing three songs and the final one containing four songs. So this is an album I have almost exclusively just listened to all the way through. When I'm in the mood to hear this, this is what I put on. Now, obviously with streaming, it's been a little bit easier to kind of cherry pick. This has been a little more difficult for me to do because number one, I'm not a musician and there's a ton of music stuff on here. That's hard because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of extended jams and that I'm not going to be able to articulate very well. And I've really just, I listen to this in these three chunks. A lot of times when I see the name of this song, it doesn't immediately bring something to mind. And then I look at the lyrics or something, I'm like, oh, right, that's that song. So for a song, for an album I've listened to so much, this contains some surprises for me and trying to articulate (laughs) how I feel about it. Yeah, they definitely don't make it very easy for the layman. I don't think there's any track on here that has a chorus that reveals the song title. Maybe Demon Cleaner. Yeah, I'd say that's probably Um, the closest. So So we're going to start here. So this is uh, side one, sweet one, song (laughs) one, Gardenia. It starts off with, you know, this is a nearly seven minute long song. And like I said, this hooked me just right from the beginning. This really tells you a lot of what you're going to hear, especially in this first suite. And it's not a very lyrical record. And that was one thing. Look, and I'm not a lyrics guy, so I don't mean that in a bad way. But looking up the lyrics is to see if there's something that to glean. And there's really not. I really like the guy's voice because his his vocals are gruff when they need to be. They're smooth when they need to be. And it works really well with the music on this record in particular. This is a band 
I really feel like just cooking on all cylinders on this record. There's just so much good stuff going on. I'm normally not a fan of longer songs. I mean, I've talked about this a million times on the show. Mm -hmm. This song never drags. There's this extended jam in the middle. You know, so I don't even know. There's probably about two minutes of just music without flashy soloing. So it's not like what we were getting in 80s metal, where if there was, you know, time in the middle, somebody was showing you how fast his fingers could move on a fretboard. And it's not that. And it's just this whole desert thing that so informed their sound because they would just go out and do these desert parties and hook up a generator and go and just play. One of the ways that I've always described them, and I don't know if I stole this or if I came up with this, so if I stole this from somebody, I apologize, but I feel like this album does a great job of, of melding like hippie wandering with punk urgency. Mm. And I know that doesn't necessarily make sense, but if you listen to this record, I think it does. What do you think about Gardenia? Yeah, well, this track, I agree, it's definitely kind of the band's mission statement for the album. It kind of contains and encapsulates, rather, a bunch of the different sounds that that they're, we're going to be exposed to, tempos and, and the jams. It's got the song, this track kind of goes back and forth between being kind of a catchy radio riff and transitioning into a jam for a while and then back again. I love how it starts out with uh, kind of introducing reader. His bass kind of comes in as just kind of this this low-end rumble kind of builds behind all the other instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's kind of ominous. He does some really good work on this record. He really does. Yeah, it's good stuff. So let's talk about Josh. <laughs> Last name pronounced home, homie. I think it's homie. I've always said home. Okay. I think I saw somewhere it is actually homie. Okay. So I've always said home, but we'll say homie, I guess. That's fine. I love how it's just kind of like a, a catchy riff. And then it kind of gives way to this funk riff that he does at the end. Yeah. Um, and then, it, yeah. And then the whole track kind of starts to groove. It also kind of exposes uh, Bjork's drum style for the album too. I really like his choice of drum style. I really like that. I'm always kind of a sucker for that, that uh, deadpan tone with not a lot of reverb and such, mm-hmm. if I'm using the right words. Um, <laughs> Uh, and a lot of the hi-hat riding. I lo- I'm always a sucker for that, which is pretty prominent in pretty much all the stoner rock stuff. Definitely a, a signature of Fu Manchu's too. I'd say one of the things I found, now that you mentioned that, is how often listening to this album in the last couple of days that I found myself playing air drums. And that's something <laughs> that I do all the time. And then just like crazy this week, I just been, I've, been, I've been pounding that invisible kit, my friend. Good, it's good. Great. Did it look good? Probably not, but we'll say yes. <laughs> there's nobody there to see it yeah i believe you thank you um yeah uh so i was actually going to save this comment for much later but since you touched upon it already about about garcia's vocals i too am one who never really kind of hyper focuses on on vocals or lyrics that much beyond kind of how the vocals are an instrument in terms of the cadence and the style and the tone and yeah, I agree 100% that his vocal style works with this really well. He's kind of just raw and gruff to fit in with their musical style. And by the same token, uh, that's kind of enough. Beca- and Or rather, it's it's lucky that that's enough because I'd say his lyrics are probably the, the shortcoming of the band, if there is one. I would agree. But I, I ultimately think for this type of music, the lyrics are not necessarily that important. So, no. And- you know, speaking of which, let's move on to track two, Asteroid. Okay. Asteroid. 
What are yep. your thoughts here, Tim? Uh, I think it's aptly titled because it's definitely the spaciest track. It's very, uh, for me, it's very Sabbath meets meets Hawkwind. I love how it eventually winds down in the end and comes to that kind of full stop. And then you think the track's over and it starts to build back up again and then crashes in uh, and it kind of erupts this cacophony of all the instruments at once on a dime. It's a fun, fun instrumental. As I had mentioned, having just always listened to this all the way through, I don't think I fully realized that this was an instrumental until this week when I was making <laughs> notes. And I don't know if I just had kind of subconsciously assigned the first half of it to Gardenia and then the second half to the next song, because it does seem to have, like you said, like these two parts to it almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has that moment where it feels like it's over and it's a little bit of a false stomp and then it goes on again. And it's less than five minutes, so it's not even like this super long jam. But really, I mean, the balls, they put a instrumental in track two. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh yeah, fuck y'all. That's what we're doing. And it's and this yeah. is where, you know, my lack of uh, musicianship kind of gets in the way because I don't know how to describe this that well. Right. Uh, me neither. And to go back to like this is one of those albums where, like I said, I don't normally like very long songs. I don't have any problem with the song's length here. I'm not a huge fan of instrumentals. I didn't even notice this was an instrumental. (laughs) And I've been listening to this album for, you know, 25 years now. You know, full disclosure, all the years that I've been listening to this album, I don't think I ever once was really terribly concerned with discerning where the tracks begin and end. I really don't care, to be honest. They blend right into one another, and I'm fine with that because you're never bored by the album. I'm never checking to see, okay, how many tracks am I in? Okay, how many more do I have to go? You know, never happens. Yeah, because I think with one exception, there's nothing that I was upset about having this three suite or, you know, three tracks because I couldn't skip something because it just plays. And I've always liked that. Let's say Asteroid goes right into track three, which is (laughs) Super (laughs) Scoopa and Mighty Scoop. I love this song. This is such a great song. It's big, you know, beefy guitars. I think this is probably his best vocal performance or really up there because this is, you know, six minutes long. And I really feel like listening to it a lot this this week that if they would have come up with an, a radio edit for this, not that I want the song to be shorter because I think it's fine mm. but to get it on the radio. I really feel like if they could have found the to, the right way to, to take out that chunk of um, of instrumental towards the end and make that smooth. I think this could have been on the radio at the time. I really do. Because sure. it's just catchy enough, but it's heavy. It does a lot of the things that Josh Homme would do a little bit later. I think there's another song that's much closer to what he would do later. So I'm going to kind of save the talk of that for, for a little bit. So I, this is just a great way to finish this suite. I think these three songs flow really well. I think they do some different stuff in the second suite. But this first one, it just this just ends on a banger. This is such a great fucking song. What do you think about this mm. one? Yeah, I agree. First of all, it's probably the best song title ever made. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I agree 100% about Garcia's uh, vocals. It's definitely the most, the best technically, certainly on this album. Um, his intro is even kind of crooner-like, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not making a judgment about whether that's good or bad. Um, <laughs> the music has definitely got, I think, kind of a doom metal element to it, just because it's tuned down so low. I mean, that's true of all of their stuff, but this track in particular, I think, is the closest to being doom metal. I can see that with the guitar, but it doesn't feel like you're walking through mud while listening to it, you know, because it still no. has that get up and go. So I think that's sure. one of the things that separates it a little bit. But yeah, that's a, that's a good thought. Right. Maybe more tonal than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's a, great, it's a great track, really drives forward. And still to this day, I can never figure out when it's over this track <laughs> i still all the false endings i always think okay yeah that's that's the last one now so oh damn it no it's not over yet i can't believe i haven't figured that out yet you can hear he hits the top of the symbol on the very last one there's a little is that the cue yeah i think it has a little bit of a more of that bell ring to it the very very last one but yeah that's because it does it what, like four times or five times or something it's just like I, yeah. yeah all right so for our cd listeners this would be track two but for us it is song four 100 degrees What do you think here, Tim? I think it's definitely the most straightforward kind of not only metal sounding song, but also kind of uh, the closest thing to a radio single. If there's one to be found on here, I think this would be it. It's very catchy, the riff. I think it sounds the most like their earlier stuff, which is not necessarily a good thing because, I mean, it kind of implies that they're moving backwards, but it sounds like the majority of the stuff on Blue Silver Red Sun, I think. Also another hard driving riff and tempo. And I think this track probably has my favorite drumming by Bjork on it. So much hi-hat. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Yeah, so they open this middle middle third with this short, this is, I think, what's well, the shortest song on the first half. And so it's only two and a half minutes, and it's just got that real kind of punk vibe to it almost, while still filtered through a metal band. So, you know, it, it has just that short, choppy urgency to it that you don't get on a a lot of the other tracks and it's really succinct it's just boom we're gonna we're right there and it just blasts you through and two minutes plus. I didn't really notice the callback to blues, but now that you say that, I can hear because I, I made sure to listen to that at least once this week just to get it back in my brain and listen to a little bit of In the Circus Left Town, but I, I never really cared for that record. So it, mm. And it hasn't improved with age. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was going to digress at some point about how this album is so amazing that it really kind of makes End Circus and the Circus a bit of a letdown, I think. Yeah, because I think just whatever they did with his vocals didn't work. It, they, the band sounded tired on that one. And, mm-hmm. you, and it was the last one that they put out, I think, or at least the last uh, studio record that they put out. Yeah. And just so much good with this one. And so we'll move on to track five, Space Cadet.
this is a seven and a half or sorry, a seven minute long song. It starts off with just the interplay between reader's bass. He's doing some yeoman's work with the bass on this one at the beginning and mm. some acoustic guitar. So we go from this real kind of short, sweet, punky number to this seven minute acoustic jam that somehow works <laughs> in the context of this middle third. This one is where they get a little bit more experimental, I feel. There's no chorus, like you said. There's no real hook. Somehow, I don't know. I, I think this is probably the only one, if this was on a regular 10-track album, that if sometimes I would probably skip this one hmm. because I like the song after it so much. Like I like this song. I don't really, for the most part, don't feel that full seven minutes, even though there's not a lot there to justify such a long <laughs> runtime. And I think in almost any other record, I'd be bitching about it because that's what I do on this show. And I'm not, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of wasted space here. I just think every once in a while, I may not be in the mood for that much of it. That's pretty rare. I mean, I, I rarely think, eh, yeah, oh, Space Kid, that's on now. Because I still, <laughs> I, I like the tune, but I think that, uh, you know, with the one exception, which we'll talk about at the very end of the show probably my least favorite song on the record while still being a really good song what do you think yeah i i'd agree i think it's probably for lack of a better description the weakest track it's very definitely there i think to slow things down and to just and to just take a breather uh it's almost exactly at the middle point of the album uh that being said this really probably should have been a monster magnet song <laughs> with the with the acute the acoustic intro the tribal percussion and of course the use of the sitar it kind of sounds like it should have been a monster magnet song be surprised if i learned that windorf wrote it for them you know yeah and i forgot i had that in my notes and forgot to and i didn't see that because i was thinking because there's two songs on here that just with this you know closer inspection that remind me a little bit of monster magnet obviously they're working in a similar genre and it was always the difference between desert dwellers and and city slums, let's say, uh, <laughs> in the way that they approached their sound. But yeah, there was one or two where I thought Monster Magnet would have made Space Cadet a more interesting song. Oh, for sure. Because there would have been like weird reverb vocals going on and and there would have been mm -hmm. talk of Odin and or a comic book or, you know, <laughs> you know, just if you take just that same basic seven minutes, I think they would have made it a slightly better song. For sure. Yeah, I agree. Track six, Demon Cleaner. What do you think here, Tim? Once again, the percussion here is very tribal and kind of ritualistic, I think. I kind of get visuals of like Wicker Man when listening <laughs> to this. It's kind of creepy and very kind of ceremonial. And I think the vocals and the lyrics kind of support that. There's a lot of the chanting uh, lyrical repetition. Mm-hmm. His, his yeah, yeah, yeahs, and his I'm the only way, chanting over and over. It's a great track. Very ceremonial, I think. Definitely has all those elements in there. And this, I think, was the only one they released as a single, or at least was available as a single. You know, I don't know if they made a video for it. I think they did. I'm not 100% sure, but I have vague memories of having 
a video for this sent to the station. And this is one that would be found like on samplers. I think this was on the CMJ sampler. I think this is the one that they really used to try to at least promote the record. You could see why. And I think that it is of this album, but probably also the most easily plucked out from this album. Like mm. you could, as great as, you know, Super Scoopa is that I think you'd have to do some work to get that to work on the radio. Whereas this one is just like, boom, it's there. It's five minutes long. It has that interesting percussion behind it. I really like his deadpan vocals here. I think it has that step back separation that works. Mm. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think it really works on this song. And again, another fine vocal performance from Garcia. I really, really like this one. And I could see why they would try to sell the record with this because it's not like, you know, sometimes you, they'll have that single and it's a little bit of a, a false flag like okay this doesn't represent mm. what's happening on the record it's maybe just the most commercial whereas this one has a commercial appeal to it while still definitely being on this record right i initially i earlier said that uh i thought 100 degrees is probably the biggest uh potential for a single but now that you mention it <laughs> this track is probably much better suited for that 100 degrees is probably a little too punk or, or fast and heavy uh this one's a little bit more palatable I could see this being being the single. Apparently, it didn't really do what they wanted it to, but there it is. Yeah, and how the machinations work in record labels, I don't, I don't know what the, what they were hoping to do or hoping to achieve. But this is the one that was available anyway, mm -hmm. short form. Right. That brings us to the end of side one of Welcome to Sky Valley with my special guest, Tim Fernandez, here on I Fucking Love This Record. Now, the last time we spoke, uh, I think the news had just been delivered that Tim Fernandez was going to be a dad. For those of you who can do math, Tim Fernandez is a dad now. So <laughs> how's, uh, how's fatherhood treating you, my friend? Pretty wonderful. Once again, the tropes of uh, not getting any sleep are definitely true. I've discovered <laughs> somebody's working on their canine teeth right now. So the, I think I got probably about four hours last night, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome experience. I would recommend it to, uh, to some people. <laughs> <laughs> I almost said to everyone, but then I realized, no, everyone's not cut out for that. No. Well, we'll look I certainly it. wasn't until I was above 40. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like to say that I, I feel like I was smart because I didn't get married until I was 38. But then, you know, not so smart because that means I had kids after the age of 40 and I'm just too damn old. But, you know, they're here and uh, yeah. I'm dealing with it. It's great. Yeah. My knee's not uh, infant ready for sure. No. no. <laughs> They'll do that like, daddy, come sit on the floor with us. And like, no, no, daddy doesn't sit on the floor. <laughs> daddy will never get up off the floor if he sits on the floor. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so we're going to flip this bad boy over. We're going to look at uh, Suite 3, Side 2, Track 7. For those of you playing at home, you can add that all up to something. It all adds up to Odyssey. God, is this a fucking great song. This is my favorite song on the record. I love this one. When I would play on the radio 
when I did my radio show, this is the track I, I generally played. When I was trying to convince people they needed to listen to this record, this is the one that I went to. Man, I love this fucking song. This is so great. Uh, but it starts off with probably some of the worst lyrics <laughs> on, the, on the record or the most cliche, because I remember playing this for Mark. I remember reading the first two lines and he was able to guess what the third line was going to be and he'd never heard the song. <laughs> Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not much beyond boilerplate, but I think just the emotion that he sings with fully makes up for it not being terrific lyrically. And then it has that middle section where it goes into just, it's cinematic for me, the, the musical break here. And I always saw this somehow being used in a movie and I had a very specific thing I wanted to do with it because it has that kind of like almost like spinning feel to it. Mm. And like, like a camera working around. And then when he screams fire to bring back into the, the lyrical content is like, like goosebumps for me. I love that part. I love this song. There's so much good going on here. And it's in a nice, succinct four-minute package. What do you got for me, Tim? Yeah, this this is a great track. Yeah, everything you said is true about this track. It's not my absolute favorite, but probably a very close second. It's kind of a bait and switch song in that it starts off with this kind of almost orchestral vibe. And then about 30 seconds, a minute in, it just slams you over the head like with a sledgehammer of this kind of punk rock crash that comes in. I very definitely think this was probably written for the pit because <laughs> you definitely see the crowd erupt when that comes crashing down. Fantastic track. That opening guitar part, because it does have that, I think, I'm I'm assuming more of a bass intro there, or just whatever it's doing, because it, like you said, it lulls you, and then just, man, it's a face punch. It's so fucking... Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Track eight, the shortest track on uh, on the record here, Conan Troutman. What do you think? So this is actually my favorite track on the album. I didn't actually realize it was the shortest track until you just said it. That has nothing to do with it. One thing about it is uh, Garcia's vocals here more than anywhere else, I think, is where his vocals kind of become an instrument. And they're really more about this kind of scatting rather than the actual words and lyrics. Um, I think it's used in that way. Uh, Again, this is another hard hitting pile driver of a track. Not terribly fast, but it's brutal. I think it's just heavy as fuck, you know? Oh, yeah. This is all metal bluster and awesomeness. This is such a great (laughs) song. And I think more than any other track on this album, I think you can hear what Queens of the Stone Age, which is the band I've been you know, purposely not mentioning because I wanted to save it for this song. I think a lot of what Queens of the Stone Age would end up doing, you hear kind of the beginnings of on this track. Uh, so I think the guitar sound is in, obviously it's the same guitar player. I find there's a real difference between how he approaches the guitar for Caius and how he approaches it for Queens. But this one, just the all out assault while still somehow 
having that commercial appeal to it almost. I don't think this would have been a super successful on the radio, a little too short, you know, ironically enough. I just like the, it's the way that the main vocal, but then there's the whispered parts. It's not like creepy or dumb, like what Korn would do, but actually kind of cool. I feel like this is something like there's, there's a template here of what he would use, not all the time, but at least a couple of tracks, every album for Queens. And I think you can see a little bit of that happening here. Mm, That's a good point. But yeah, this is, uh, like I said, I, I still prefer Odyssey, but that so for me, this is probably a close second because it's just, it's so good. And that moves us on to track nine, N-O. This is just another one. This last suite is so, because like that first suite, I think really sets you up and all the songs, you know, they sound of each other. They they flow really well. And then in that middle suite, that's probably the choppiest because it's got mm. the, the highs and the lows. I think there's a little bit more experimentation going on. And then they bring you out with just, okay, we're going to punch you in the face. We're going to punch you in the face. We're going to punch you in the face. And here's another thing. We're going to punch you in the face. And it's so great. (laughs) These last four songs, they flow probably not quite as well as those first three, but pretty close. This one has just a little bit of that ZZ top boogie to it. Once it gets past that intro and it locks into a real groove, there's just some really cool stuff going on musically. I just, I like how this all, this is one of those where they're just, they're locked in. And they're doing it, and it's great. What do you think about this one? From what I understand, I think Reader brought this song over from his old band, which yeah. the name escapes me. So th- this is apparently the only track that he wrote or wrote exclusively. Yeah, the the, the riff by Homies is just groovy. It's really groovy. But then it also kind of has, I'd say it's probably the most Iomi-like out of all of his guitar work on this whole album. Mm. despite the fact that he claims to have never really heard Black Sabbath before, at least when, when he was interviewed for this album. I remember that, which, you know, how can you believe that one? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, that's no, no, that's what really stands out for me on this track is his riff. I didn't really hear that. I'll have to listen to it again. You know, oh, darn, I'll have to listen to it again. But I don't, I don't remember <laughs> hearing much, uh, much Sabbath in that because it was just, I, it just had that ZZ Top mm. influence as opposed to, you know, just every once in a while you, you can hear a band, you're like, yep. Those dudes were listening to ZZ Top when they were kids or so, you know, just they have that because it just locks into that groove Mm. uh, that uh, early ZZ Top could do so well. All right, then. So that brings us on to track 10. Let's say the final regular non-hidden track, Whitewater. What do you think about this one? This is kind of their ultimate jam closer. This it's it's a huge jam song. I definitely feel like this track is there just to kind of go balls out jam and just do the mother of all jams that they wanted to do and go out that way. 
in that respect, it almost kind of feels like they knew this was going to be uh, Bjork's last album because it, it does feel like kind of a love letter or a swan song. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about why he left the band. I don't know anything about why. Did I mean? Did he leave under good terms? Do you know? Was there a, was it were there issues? What caused him to leave the band? Do you know? I don't know, but what I've inferred from a lot of the interviews and stuff is that everybody was kind of sick of homie. Yeah, <laughs> I think he basically he was the rock star or aspired to be the rock star, and the rest of them didn't. And I kind of gleaned that from the fact that they all kind of never stop speaking or working with each other in varying degrees after this is over, after Caius is over. And Homie is the only one that never works with any of them. Ah, okay. Yeah. There was a whole thing where, where the three of them tried to tour as Caius lives and Homie shut that down and sued them. They record a studio album as uh, Vista Chino. So I that's yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so the, uh, the this big eight minute take you out. So I know you said you heard some Pink Floyd aspects to it, and I was surprised to hear a little bit of Zeppelin without being mm-hmm. able to really put my finger on how. But just there's a, a certain part in the song where in that second half we're like, yeah, there's there's just a little bit of a Zeppelin jam to it, and there's some just really nimble bass work on this one again reader doing some really nice work on this record and you can hear a lot of that and i'm a fan of the of the previous bass player i think he's good and Oliveri? yeah so i i, I think Oliveri is a is a madman on the bass and but reader just brought something special to this one and i don't know if it was just new guy showing what he could do or if this is why he was i'm assuming this is why he was chosen but there's some good stuff on this and it all works in together and you know i don't even know for how long it finishes without any vocals again doesn't feel like it's it overstays its welcome and normally you show like eight minutes come on come on who has eight minutes i don't have eight minutes to listen to one song i got things to do but no never never once did i think oh when is the song gonna be over because it's like ah I'm actually just afraid of what comes next. So I think that's why I wanted the song to maybe even be a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about whether or not we were going to do it. We decided to do it. This, if you have the CD, I think my original CD did not have this. And then I ended up having to buy it again. I can't remember if I gave it away or if it got stolen or lost. I don't remember, but I ended up, and then there was a hidden track or track 11, less than a minute long. And it's called Lick Do. And I mm. fucking hate it. <laughs> and I know I should have yeah. more of a sense of humor about it or something. They've just put mm. out this really serious record and it's just, it almost has this Faith No Morian kind of, we're going to just do something dumb right now because we can, because we're Faith No More and we're, you know, we like doing that. Because it's just like this organ, like you would hear in the mall in 1988, you know, that old dude sitting there playing the organ. That's, you know, this. And then he just says, you know, you can and will lick my do. And then there's a little bit of doo-wop behind it. And that's it. That's the whole song. And I hate it. And I wish I didn't hate it so much because it makes me sound like a scold. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's this track's fucking unnecessary. So unnecessary. Especially, like you said, coming off of how great and serious this album is. Like, why would you do this? But you know what? It's also true, though, that in 1994, this fucking thing was obligatory. It's like a Marvel movie after credits scene where people are scratching their heads if it's not there. Why that became a thing, I don't know, but it was a thing. It's a sign of the times, right? Yeah, that's. I think the nicest thing about the death of the CD is the death of the hidden track. It's like, (laughs) give give me the track or don't give me the track. Just, uh, you know, I don't care. Just don't make me listen. What I always hated was when they kept it, you know, because sometimes it was just, okay, there's only 10 songs listed and then there's 11 tracks. But what I hate is that where like track 10 is now 
26 minutes long because the actual <laughs> song is eight minutes and then they have you know 15 minutes of fucking silence and then a minute long song like you yeah. asshole and especially if yep. it's like a good, if it's a good song and you wanted to put it on a mixed disc or something yeah. at the time you couldn't do it you couldn't do it because it's i'm not it's 26 minutes long i can't do that yeah yeah i'm sorry yeah that, little... that, that always fucks up uh, once we had to rip everything right yeah. once once we made everything digital so i've got those songs on my iphones with when the song ends i'm driving and then there's like 26 minutes of silence <laughs> and i'm like why is there so oh yeah they did a fucking hidden track assholes and i'll skip through it we probably spent more time talking about that than we should have okay so what about uh, what are your final <laughs> what are your final thoughts this is uh, as far as i'm concerned caius is abbey road this is them at their peak musically and compositionally in any other band's hands i would say that the whole concept of the suites instead of individual tracks would be pretentious and kind of annoying but it's never the case here. Like I said before, it, it kind of makes it so great that it makes their next album a bit of a letdown, which is unfortunate. But, you know, hey, at least we have this one. And I think what this album kind of does for Caius is it kind of exposes, uh, reveals rather, that the longer format is really for them. They're not a single uh, machine. They're, they're, they're much better when they just are left to their own devices and, and self-indulge a little. Yeah, I would agree with that because, you know, like I said, I went back and, and re-listened to Blues for the Red Sun, and I think that's a great record. I love that record. But that feels like a band setting up for what we get here. And this just feels like a band going for it. Like they had an idea and they executed it, and it was just everybody working on all cylinders. There's so much to like about this record. I'm just happy like 25 years later, I still get real legitimate pleasure out of listening to this record. I don't have a lot of nostalgia. It's not like I listen to this and I remember hearing it in 1994. Occasionally, you know, it still catches me, but this is one I've just listened to throughout the years. Like uh, there, there hasn't been a year gone by that I haven't listened to this album a couple of times. So it's one of those albums that have really traveled with me and I just still viscerally love this record and it's not a it's not a nostalgia piece or it's not something just that i'm remembering how much i loved it like i still love this record yep i agree same same here it's timeless the other interesting thing about this album too is i think it really perfectly encapsulates what their whole scene was about i think it you hear the sand <laughs> in in their equipment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Probably a slightly muddled production that I remember people complaining about when I would play it for them back then. And I don't care because I just, I think this sounds this way because it's supposed to sound this way. Right. And anybody who is a fan of heavy music and maybe missed out on Caius just because, you know, you just, you, you didn't know about him, didn't hear about him or didn't get around to him. Go listen to this record just now. Drop what you're doing. Go listen to this record because it's, it's good. And get the get the sweets, you know, get it on CD. <laughs> Listen to it all the way through because you have to. That's what I have to say about that. If you have been enjoying the show, I would encourage you to maybe tell other people that you enjoy the show. Let them know about it. So, you know, tweet about the show, mention it on Facebook. Go ahead and give us a like or a subscribe or, I don't know, maybe write a, a nice review about how handsome I am on the, on the radio. Something like that. I don't know. Do that for me. I would appreciate it. Tim, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I'm looking forward to uh, part four of our Stoner Rock trilogy in season four. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> 
thanks for taking the time away from uh, from the little baby. Thank you and goodbye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.